More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Hello, hello, everybody. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a grad student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all these awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Alex. Oh my gosh, Alex, I actually am just remembering that I didn't ask you for the pronunciation of your last name. So why don't you give it to us? <laughs> That's absolutely no worries. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Alex Vampe. Vampe, so okay. German last name uh, originally. Gotcha. Thank you. I'm so sorry. That was on my to-do list and it's the one thing I missed to no do. No worries at all. <laughs> well, Alex is a fourth year PhD candidate in the microbiology department here at OSU. And today we're going to be talking about his research, which focuses on coral reef stressors. So uh, thank you for being here, Alex. Welcome to the show. Especially thank you because Alex informed us that he was diving at Clear Lake today. So you had to drive all the way into the mountains and then be here. So thank you very much. Thank you so much again for having me. I, I love being underwater. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and on the radio to talk about being underwater. <laughs> all right. So let's let's jump right in. You your your research is about corals coral reefs. Um, so let's let's give the listeners kind of an overview. What I'm assuming most people know what a coral or coral reef is, but let's talk a little bit about the benefits. Like why is it important to understand them, know more about them, and to sort of manage and protect them? Yeah, for sure. So coral reefs are uh, these uh, massively important ecosystems, and uh, they support people both indirectly and directly on our planet. A lot of coastal and island nations rely on coral reefs directly uh, for both food and tourism, uh, and it's also a very important uh, landmark uh, for these coastal communities. And indirectly, coral reefs are vastly important for supporting fisheries uh, that a lot of us uh, largely rely on for, for our food. So these... Um, these ecosystems are really important to protect uh, for uh, millions of people around the world. How does a coral reef support fish? Is it just like a little house? Could we could we replace coral reefs with like little Lego houses and like be fine? <laughs> so uh, corals are a great support for fish. First of all, because of their complexity, uh, corals are a very uh, three dimensionally complex environment that allows uh, that provides uh, housing like apartments for fish. <laughs> Um, fish can actually uh, seek refuge in coral reefs. Uh, and also the complexity of the structure allows for growth of a variety of organisms on uh, the reef. So, of course, there's the coral animals themselves, and there are some fish that will feed on these animals directly, like parrotfish. And then there's also a variety of uh, macroalgaes, which will establish on uh, the surface of the reef and are a nutritional source for a, a large diversity of fish as well. And not only fish, but also other uh, marine invertebrates uh, as well. Yeah. yeah, I always forget that corals are living organisms, right? They're not, they're not a, like, they're not a plant. They're, well, are they in their own sort of category? Where, where do they fall in the 
phylogenetic tree? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not a phylogenetic. I'm not phylogeneticist. I'm not uh, going to give you a very accurate description there, but um, we can stay broad. <laughs> but but corals are really cool in the sense that they kind of have the best of even three worlds. So, uh, of course, they're animals, uh, but they also have uh, endosymbionts. So symbionts that live within their animal cells that are actually uh, dinoflagellates, so they're kind of part plant. Mm. And they also um, have this aragonite uh, calcium carbonate skeleton, uh, which makes them also a rock. So they're they're kind of three in one. Uh, I stand corrected. They are part plant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 ter in terms of phylogeny, though, so uh, corals are most similar to if you see anemones on the coast, they're mm. very closely related. So they're in the phylum Cnidaria. Uh, so they're closely related to things like anemones and, and jellyfish. Uh, jellyfish is a lot of various things, and I won't go into that right now. But, <laughs> but colloquially, when, when we think of jellyfish, a lot of them are in the phylum Cnidaria. So that's kind of where corals lie for an evolutionary context. And so, okay, so corals, they provide... Um, us and sort of the ecosystem lots of things both directly and indirectly what can what can stress out a coral what right probably life is difficult especially in a world with climate change so yeah what's what stresses out corals yeah totally so uh something which uh many of you probably see in the news related to climate change is coral bleaching so uh coral bleaching while it uh, isn't only caused by this particular stressor. It can be caused uh, by uh, pathogens, for example, and, and other things. It's primarily caused by thermal stress. Mm. So uh, elevated temperature in the water uh, due to raising ocean temp rising ocean temperatures um, is very deleterious to the relationship between the endosymbiotic dinoflagellate and the coral host cells. And this relationship basically breaks down after uh, prolonged exposure to heat. And this uh, leaves the animals to sort of fend for themselves. Uh, it, the animals themselves don't have any pigment. Uh, the, the skeleton that's underneath is a white color. So you see mm. uh, these white corals uh, on the reef. And these animals have lost their algal symbionts, which give them all of their uh, vibrant colors that we associate with coral reefs. Mm. Um, and if this relationship is broken down for long enough, corals can reacquire these al algae actually from the water column. But if this relationship is broken down for long enough, the corals effectively starve to death. The, the algae provide the coral with 95% uh, or more uh, of their energy. So they're crucially important for them. So stress is a uh, thermal stress is a big a way that uh, corals can sort of, as you said, get stressed out mm -hmm. uh, and, and die. Uh, but there are a variety of other stressors as well. For example, I was talking about these macroalgae uh, that can cover the surface of the reef. Well, if there aren't fish uh, or other herbivores that are living on the reef to consume these macroalgae, they can outcompete the coral endosymbionts for photosynthesis. And basically blanket the reef, also starve it, uh, also starve the corals of their energy mm. and also cause disease and uh, eventually kill the corals and actually take over the reef to dominate, uh, dominate the entire reefscape. So you, you get this phase shift from a, a coral dominated reef to a macroalgae dominated reef. So... In another way um, that corals can be stressed is uh, through pollution from the land. So fertilizer runoff um, in places where fertilizer is already present at high levels in the water can can stress the corals out. Um, it can uh, change their microbial communities, which I'll uh, delve into a little bit later. Uh, but also they can promote growth of this macroalgae as well. So. Uh, there is a variety of connections between the land and the sea, uh, which can stress corals out and uh, lead to their decline. So it's hard being a coral, I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, it seems simple and nice, but... <laughs> yeah, to just to just be on to the just bottom be, of the seafloor. <laughs> just be chilling, yeah, no lab. So, 
Okay, so corals are stressed, but they're important. So we need to better understand sort of how the corals are affected by these different stressors and what processes are going on. But how do you investigate stress in a coral? I mean, I'm assuming it's not as simple as, you know, measuring their stress hormone level. So how are you, yeah, trying to understand stress in corals? Yeah. So my uh, personal uh, way of studying stress in corals is looking at their microbial communities. But there are a variety of other ways in which researchers around the world study uh, coral stress and try to measure coral stress. So I mentioned these uh, endosymbiotic dinoflagellate algae. Uh, researchers can measure the numbers of these algae in a coral colony. So for example, if a coral is experiencing some stress, uh, most likely thermal stress, their uh, algal counts, their endosymbiont counts will actually go down. So that is a way that we can tr track stress in a coral. Um, also corals um, might give visual clues that they're stressed. So uh, for example, there are coral health charts, and if a coral is starting to fade and lose some color, we know that a coral is stressed. Mm. Also, a big stressor I didn't mention earlier is pathogens. Uh, corals experience a lot of uh, pathogens in the ocean, and there are a lot of coral diseases that have been uh, connected to either individual pathogens or pathogenic consortia. And uh, these often have visual signs, like they're are black band, white band diseases where mm. you literally see these patterns on the corals. Um, and we can measure levels of these pathogens also uh, directly through uh, both uh, molecular methods like qPCR or cell culture uh, sometimes for uh, culturable pathogens. Mm. So lots of different ways, but as you mentioned, you're looking at um, the microbiome of each of these corals. So can you just, for anyone who doesn't know, um, define sort of what a microbiome is? Yeah, for sure. So uh, a microbiome uh, sort of broadly refers to uh, the community of microbes that live in and on an organism. So we have a microbiome, for example, we have uh, millions of microbes living on both on us, on our skin and in us. Uh, the gut microbiome uh, has gotten a lot of attention in, in research in recent years, for example. And corals also have uh, microbial, diverse microbial communities that live both in and on them. So what do I mean by microbial community? This can be a, a wide range of organisms ranging from viruses to bacteria to archaea to protists. So this is sort of a, a big umbrella term. Uh, I specifically work on bacteria and archaea. Mm. So that is that is the focus that I have chosen within the microbiome. And mm. is that simply because like there's too many to study them all? Some some people try. So <laughs> there there are some people who who study the microbiome more completely, but uh, it is a lot of work and it requires a lot of expertise. And hopefully eventually through my training, I will be able to um, address those other organisms better uh, and look at the microbiome more completely. Mm. But something that makes uh, bacteria and archaea so convenient uh, for me to look at is they have uh, this, this shared gene, uh, which is highly conserved, um, uh, called the 16S gene. And this uh, codes for a, a portion of the small uh, ribosomal RNA and uh, it has some variable regions which allow us to distinguish between individual bacterial and archaeal taxa. So using uh, the DNA from uh, coral cells, from coral hosts, I can investigate uh, the communities of bacteria and archaea that live uh, on and inside the animals. So the coral animal actually has sort of three main components. When we think about the microbiome, there is the, the mucus, which is the outermost. This is literally coral snot. Uh, <laughs> corals, as soon as, you, as soon as you disturb them, uh, even a little bit, even if you kind of tickle them with a, with a tube, which is the technical <laughs> method for collecting this. Uh, uh, this tube tickling. Tube ti yes, exactly. <laughs> um, they will secrete a bunch of snot. Mm. And this coral snot is filled with microbes. And this is sort of an interface uh, between the 
the seawater uh, environment, the ambient environment, and the coral animal. And then there is the coral tissue itself. Mm. And then underneath the tissue is the skeleton. So mm. in my analyses, I kind of group all of those together and look at, um, look at microbes, uh, ba- bacteria, and archaea across all three of those compartments. So when they release the snot, do they release it like a sea cucumber does? Where it just is a projectile? <laughs> so I I don't know sea cucumber biology super well, but from, <laughs> from, from what I know, they actually a lot of the time completely eject their guts. So oh. <laughs> they can completely avert their intestines uh, to a, not attack, but as a defensive mechanism. Mm. Uh, I don't know a lot about their mucus. Uh, they, maybe it does also slough off. But if you touch a coral there will just be this kind of mucusy substance that forms in the water that you'll be able to see it's literally like coral boogers <laughs> it's what? not sorry not very appetizing <laughs> um, yeah sorry if you're, what happens. sorry if you're eating your dinner right now <laughs> so i think before we dive haha dive any deeper oh into but <laughs> <laughs> Dive any deeper into your specific research. Um, can you just explain to the listenership um, what the Anna Karenina principle is and how that kind of fits into your work? Yeah, so the Anna Karenina principle uh, broadly refers to microbiomes in a variety of animal systems. And this principle was uh, developed in part by my advisor for my PhD, doc- Dr. Uh, Rebecca Vega Thurber, who goes by Becky Vega Thurber. And this principle uh, basically cites uh, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And the way that the novel starts out is it says, and I'll paraphrase, I don't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines uh, that happy families are all happy alike, but as soon as families get unhappy, they sort of become unhappy differently. Hmm. Uh, they, they suffer uh, alone, uh, so, to, so to speak. Um, and this tends to be true for the microbiomes of many animals, that when uh, the microbiomes, when the animal is healthy, the microbiomes sort of have a pattern. Uh, there are a lot of similarities in uh, dominant taxa that occur in the microbiome um, and a lot of the same functions uh, that these taxa provide to the host uh, through their symbioses. However, when the host, the animal host, is subjected to a stress, uh, for example, for corals, that could, this could be heat stress or a pathogen stress or nutrient or loss of herbivory, as I discussed, um, this will change the microbiome uh, often by increasing its diversity and these changes are different, tend to be different between individuals. So, so there tends to be a high level of uh, what is called dispersion. Mm. So if you look at uh, samples that are grouped across a certain trait, um, they're actually going to become more dissimilar from each other. Yeah, I, I, I always think it's so, um, I don't know, poetic when something like literary is brought into science. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but... That's why I really wanted to highlight that. So, yes, listeners, uh, keep that principle in mind as we sort of step through Alex's uh, research and results later on. Um, So, yes, let us dive into what you do, Alex, and how you do it. So you uh, undertake field and lab work in a very um, cool and faraway location. (laughs) Reveal where it is and and sort of what you do and how how you collect data in order to investigate stressors of corals. So I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to work in uh, Morea, which is an island in French Polynesia. It's uh, relatively close to Tahiti. It's actually about a 30-40 minute ferry ride. So if you kind of can picture where Tahiti is in the Pacific Ocean, if you can't, um, if you can picture where Hawaii is in the Pacific Ocean, you can go directly south, uh, south of the equator. Um, uh, the, the nearest landmass, uh, big landmass to the area is New Zealand. So uh, the reason that we work on Morea is, first of all, there is a uh, multi-university and international research station there 
um, called uh, Gump Marine Station. And this is uh, from the U uh, University of California, Berkeley. And uh, this uh, international uh, station also hosts uh, the uh, Coral Long-Term Ecological Research Site. Mm. So there are these National Science Foundation long-term ecological sites around the world which monitor key ecosystems uh, to the functioning of our planet. And uh, one of them is coral reefs, and the, the coral reef uh, long-term ecological research is on Morea. So the reason that the National Science Foundation chose this site in particular is because the trajectories of the corals there have been very interesting following them the past 20 years or so. Whereas many reefs around the world have faced uh, decline and loss of coral coverage in large numbers, corals on Morea have continued to be resilient mm. to a lot of these stresses. And still, even after uh, large-scale disturbances, such as uh, crown of thorns, outbreaks, these are predators that feed on the corals, mm. uh, storms, and massive bleaching events, the coral cover on these islands around Morea still remains really high compared to the rest of the world. Hmm. And so is there only, I've heard of the long-term ecological research um, locations. What's the term for them? Well, I've heard of LTERs before. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize that it's like one site per ecosystem. So this is the only coral LTER in the world. I, or, I need to fact check okay. this. <laughs> um, I, it's, so the LTER uh, system is the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. So this is a U.S. effort. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are many uh, marine biology stations on coral reefs around the world. Right. Uh, but in terms of the National Science Foundation long-term ecological research program, I believe it is the only coral site. Um, but I don't want to <laughs> make false claims, but uh, it's one of the few, at least. Uh, gotcha. And so is... Part of the reason there, uh, Coral Reef has stayed resilient due to the remoteness of the location, or is there something else going on there? So that is a question that the long-term ecological research program has been interested in for the past uh, 20 or so years that it's done its time series there. Uh, so why are these corals so resilient? And what are these underpinning drivers of resilience? How can we understand them and how can we maybe apply them to other reefs uh, around the world. So that might be part of it. Um, it is a, a fairly isolated uh, archipelago. Um, the waters there are very oligotrophic, uh, so very nutrient-poor water uh, around the islands. Um, but some of these key drivers are, are still yet to be understood. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the um, coral species that your specific research mm -hmm. is focusing on, as well as the stressors that you're investigating. Yeah, so on this island of Morea, we have an uh, experiment that's actually set up in the field uh, on the barrier reef around the island. So uh, we look at three corals that are uh, quite common on the reef. The reef itself um, has relatively low coral diversity mm. uh, when you look at sheer abundance. Um, so the, the corals that we're interested in for the microbiome research are Pasolopera viricosa, which is the most dominant coral on the reef, Paredes labata, which is a coral um, sort of at intermediate dominance, and then we have um, also Cropper retusa, which is a coral that used to be at uh, relatively high abundances on the reef, but has dramatically declined uh, through recent events. Hmm. Yeah, and I'll just uh, urge, maybe that's too strong of a word, but viewers, go to our uh, website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, and you can see images of these three different uh, coral species to... Um, yeah, sort of get a better picture in your mind. Perhaps of, as a polite suggestion. As a polite suggestion, yes, thank you. <laughs> and, and I very impolitely uh, only called them by their scientific names because I'm very used to referring them to, uh, to them in this way. But uh, so a cropper retusa doesn't actually uh, really have a common name, um, but uh, Pasolopera varicosa is called a cauliflower coral. Mm -hmm. If if there are divers amongst uh, the, the <laughs> listeners, especially if you dove in uh, Hawaii, a lot of the corals there are pretty similar. Mm. 
So uh, cauliflower coral and lobe coral is Parietes lobata. And so you just sort of alluded to the fact that there you have in situ underwater experiments. Um, so, um, yeah, tell us sort of the setup of those two and I guess a little more about how you do that. You have to get in the water to do this research. Yes, for sure. And uh, I just realized that I totally forgot about the second part of your question. Oh, is the stressors. Which, <laughs> which, which stressors we subject. Well, this ties in perfectly with the design. So um, what we have uh, on the reef are herbivore exclosures. So these are basically cages, uh, one meter by one meter uh, by about a foot <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that we put um, that we've installed on the reef, like uh, actually over the corals. And uh, these cages are made of a metallic mesh um, that's about an inch by an inch uh, mesh across. And what we've done to these cages is we've cut a little squares in this mesh to uh, increase the size and abundance of herbivores that can enter these exclosures and feed um, both on the coral animals and also on the macroalgae that are growing on the coral. So... That is one of our uh, conditions. So one of our stressors that we're uh, simulating here is a, is a reduction or removal of herbivores. Mm-hmm. The second condition is uh, we also have some cages in which we have diffusers that are uh, stably diffusing nitrates and phosphates into the water uh, within a one meter radius. So th- this doesn't permeate um far out onto the reef. It just affects a very controlled, mm. uh, small uh, volume of water around the cages. So this is uh, simulating a coastal runoff, for example, a fertilizer runoff uh, from farms on shore, and how these effects can uh, interact with reductions in herbivory and whatever is happening in the surrounding environment to affect uh, the coral communities in our cages. So is there a reason you wouldn't want, like, uh, carnivorous fish or, or something to come in? Like, we just, like, don't want a sneaky little octopus to mess up your experiment? Or why why are we filtering the herbivores? So the reason we're, fil- uh, we're excluding the herbivores is we want to see the effects of reduced um, consumption of macroalgae on the reef, on uh, the, the microbiome. Uh, dynamics and also on the benthic community. So basically we have plots uh, with the top of the cage missing. And so this condition allows for whatever animal uh, wants to go down and feed on the algae on this reef or just on the corals itself can go and do that. But we also have a gradient of uh, opening sizes. So we have like seven and a half by seven and a half inch openings and then three by three inch openings, mm-hmm. something like that, uh, where we're reducing the amount uh, that animals can go in and feed on these algae on the reef to, to where very few fish can actually fit in those one by one inch uh, squares. So we have a lot more uh, macroalgal overgrowth mm. on these corals. So you're varying the size of those, I guess, holes. But are you also varying the amount of holes so that you're so that you're looking at both, right? Because going smaller and smaller in size, that means that smaller fish um, can or can't access the corals. But I guess having more or less would also sort of reduce the density of of fish around the coral. Right. So we're actually just looking at one variable here. Mm. We're keeping the amount of holes constant. Um, it's uh, five on each face of the cage. Um, and, and this is just so that we can uh, most precisely uh, disentangle the uh, interactive effects of herbivory nutrients and environment. Makes sense. Yeah, otherwise you're sort of introducing too many other things. We already have such a nested <laughs> experiment, with, and corals are so good at dying, uh, as, as we yeah. discussed earlier, that it, that it makes replication hard sometimes. Yeah. But. Well, and on top of these two experimental stressors, Um, you actually had a natural stressor come through this reef system, which, I don't know, both sort of a bummer, but also this like super cool opportunity to investigate a third stressor or the effect, like, yeah. 
Exactly. Um, definitely a bummer uh, because I don't know if you included uh, images on the on the blog post, but the whole reef basically bleached. Mm. Uh, this was a big thermal stress event that happened in the spring of 2019 that resulted in high coral mortality and bleaching. And um, but however, uh, this large scale event was, as you said, uh, a great opportunity for us to explore the interactive effects of uh, this severe bleaching with the other local stressors, uh, such as nutrient uh, enrichment and uh, herbivore reduction, uh, studying that interaction. Yeah, so not only are you going underwater, setting up these these sort of um, yeah in-situ experiments, but you're also then collecting fragments of each of these coral species and conducting experiments on shore um, at this, um, was it the Gump Institute? Yeah, the, the Gump Station, the Gump, Gump Station. Marine Station. Like Forrest Gump? Yeah. Yeah, like Forrest Gump. <laughs> Named after Forrest Gump. <laughs> I'm sure. Famous no. uh, oceanographer. <laughs> Um, yeah, so tell us a little bit of, about those onshore experiments. So those onshore experiments, I, I still need to analyze the data for that. Mm -hmm. I actually just collected these samples this past August. But uh, here I wanted to dig, uh, dig a little bit deeper into thermal stress in corals specifically. And um, I collected uh, coral colonies uh, from the... Uh, species Parides lobata, and this is a species in which I observed on this barrier reef a really high uh, diversity of micro, uh, a really high diversity of bacteria and archaea. Hmm. And interestingly, these corals actually fared uh, pretty well through the thermal stress event in 2019. And when I tracked uh, the composition of the uh, microbial communities in this coral, they basically remained a high diversity throughout the stressor and were able to sort of adapt the composition of their microbes and survive uh, throughout this event, which, mm -hmm. which I thought was very curious um, because it, it's really interesting how a coral can control the composition of, of its uh, bacterial or archaeal community. Mm. And so I took samples of these corals and I subjected some of them to a heat stress in a, in a controlled Aquarius setting where I, I mimicked a stress event uh, akin to the one uh, that these corals experienced in 2019. And some of them I left at ambient temperature. And in um, some animals, like in humans, for example, we can use these little uh, nucleic acid uh, molecules called microRNAs to control the compositions of our microbiomes to knock down uh, particular taxa uh, that are present in our in our microbiomes and such molecules have been identified in corals as well but we don't know how the corals use them or if they can use them to control their microbiomes through heat stress for example so that's what I was curious in this experiment, and I uh, collected samples for both DNA analysis, which will show me the composition of bacteria and archaea over the heat stress, as well as these microRNAs, so RNA uh, data, which will uh, allow me to correlate those two. Mm. So that lab work is still pending to yes. be done now. Yes. Fair enough. You only collected those that in uh, that data in August. But um, let's, I guess, touch a little more about how that one species... I don't, I don't remember the genus name, but Lobata, um, that species sort of survived that big 2019 coral bleaching event, but the other two species didn't or not as well. So that's already sort of a manifestation of the Anna Karenina principle a little bit that some, some survived and some did not and how they survived through it is due to differences in the microbiome. Yeah. So what really interested me in the, in the paper I'm working on right now is um, there was actually very different survival trajectories amongst, uh, within these three species. So Acropora retusa, uh, after the 2019 event, they, they bleached and a lot of them died after mm -hmm. that. So, uh, the bleaching event removed a, a large percentage of these corals from the reef. However, with, uh, Prides lobata and Pasolopra viricosa, both of those tended to survive and, while Parides lobata sort of was able to maintain 
a constant abundance. There, there was some reduction, uh, but not really significant. Pastelopra varicosa was actually able to dominate the reef. So most of these animals survived, and they are now uh, sort of the, the main coral that you'll see on this reef. And, and this got me really interested in how changes in their microbial communities over this massive stress event uh, correlate with their survival trajectories. Mm. And what, what I saw in the data is that uh, once the Acropora retusa corals were subjected to the heat stress and they underwent these Anna Karenina dynamics where their microbial community diversified and became more dissimilar between individuals, once that happened, they weren't really able to go back. Mm. So as I look at uh, the corals that survived uh, over time, the, the, the few individuals that survived after that stress event, they still live in this stressed microbiome state. Hmm. Uh, and some of these taxa that appeared in their microbiomes were key in classifying their mortality when I conducted uh, machine learning analyses to see why these corals may have died from a microbiome perspective. Hmm. But this is very different than what happened in Parides lobata and in Pasolopra viricosa. As I mentioned in Parides lobata, they start out in a high diversity state when before the stress, so maybe when they're healthy, they have this high diversity straight state. And it's merely the, the composition of the microbes that changes, but somehow the corals are able to adapt to this change in composition. And this is why I call these corals resilient. Mm -hmm. They're resilient to this heat stress. There was an entirely different pattern in Pasolopra. So these corals looked very similar to a cropper corals before the heat stress. They have this low diversity microbiome dominated by key players that we know are symbiotic in corals. But then when we introduce them to the heat stress, they diversify mm -hmm. just like we saw in a cropper retusa. But then within a few months of the heat stress, they're able to bring their microbiome composition back down to basically exactly what it was before the heat stress. Huh. So it's this really interesting dynamic that I, I refer to as a resistant um, microbiome. So these corals are basically able to resist uh, perturbations from these stressors and, and conserve their microbial composition. And did I understand that correctly? So not only are there differences between the three different species, but within each species, there's differences between individuals? That's, that's also true. Uh, that's also true. So some individuals survived and some individuals died. So that was another analysis that I was interested in. And um, just to see which taxa are differentially abundant between corals that died so looking at uh, the microbial communities of these corals before they died um, and, the, and the microbial communities of the corals that survived. And also, as I mentioned, using machine learning hmm. to look at which taxa are best at predicting coral mortality for each of these species. And they were different between each of the corals. So for Acropora, the, the coral that fared the worst, uh, so to speak, the one that died uh, by and large, um, it actually, uh, the microbe that best predicted its mortality was a very common uh, microbial symbiont, endozoicomonas. So this is a known uh, bacterial symbiont which helps the coral acquire amino acids and, and fixes nitrogen. So having a greater abundance of this microorganism was the difference for this species, whether they survived or died. Uh, and but the species were different for for the other corals and for some of them uh, they are taxa that we hypothesize have some symbiotic function but we don't really know what it is mm -hmm. for example for uh, Pasolopra one of these organisms was uh, in the genus uh, Candidatus amoebophilus and this taxon has appeared in several coral uh, microbiome papers but we don't really know how specifically it can help a coral. And so I'm actually, uh, this is also in the works, uh, <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm working on some metagenomic analyses of uh, the taxa that belong to this uh, clade in my uh, samples. And I'm trying to do a reference-based genome assembly, which will let me 
look at the functions that this organism has uh, and give us a little bit more clues into how it can help corals survive. I find this... Sorry, go ahead, Brian. Um, so I was just thinking, like, as the corals are getting stressed, could you do the equivalent of, like, like a, a fecal transplant in humans where you, like, take some uh, microbiome that's, like, they like and just kind of paint it on them? Yeah, so um, I, th- I think the area... For what you're describing, the the thing that I'm most familiar with is uh, uh, probiotic research in corals. So uh, there has been some extensive work uh, primarily by uh, a Brazilian uh, researcher, uh, Dr. Raquel Pejoto, um, developing uh, and understanding which microbes are beneficial for a wide uh, range of corals through for helping them to get through heat stress. And sometimes it literally is like taking a paste of microbes and smothering it on a coral. I was being facetious, but I actually nailed it. <laughs> no, so, uh, so, so there's a there's a researcher, Dr. Blake Ushijima, who has helped develop uh, these probiotic pastes for for corals. And actually, in um, in the Caribbean, there's a, a big disease issue called uh, uh, stony uh, sorry, well, sorry stony coral there we go St- stony coral tissue loss disease i don't work in the system so i'm a little bit rusty on the nomenclature but it's it's wiping out corals in the caribbean right mm. now and people don't really know what's causing it mm. and are really scrambling to prevent the transmission of this pathogen and uh these pastes and epoxies of beneficial organisms or just preventing disease progression mm. are, are key uh, players in this effort uh, mm. to, pre- to prevent the spread of this pathogen. Hmm. Well, and maybe if you, as part of this sort of big LTER puzzle, figures out why French Polynesian or Morea corals have been able to sort of survive and adapt so well, maybe we can make a paste out of that and go schmear it <laughs> on all kinds of corals yeah. <laughs> around the world. And... Even even before there is a paste, um, the diagnostic implications of this work are very important for coral conservation mm. on the order of both which species are better at surviving mm. uh, stressors and what are the drivers of uh, this resilience and resistance in this coral. And also between individuals in a certain species, which individuals are more likely to make it and which are not. And how can we use diagnostics like microbiome data to then focus restoration efforts on specific corals? Mm. I I find this so fascinating. And yeah, hopefully, I mean, yes, the di- I agree totally the diagnostics and first understanding like what, yeah, what is allowing some to succeed and others to not. Um, and, and then I want to like de-stress paste. <laughs> We all need that. <laughs> oh, dream on, Brian. <laughs> we need a we need an Oregon State grad Painted student on. stress pace. <laughs> well, you're in the Department of Microbiology. Hook us up. <laughs> um, let's pivot a little bit um, to talk more about you, Alex, and your journey here. I I kind of thought it was incredible that um, you during your undergrad you had you. You know, you heard about your advisor, Becky Vega Thurber. You heard about her lab and her research. You read some of her papers and classes. And now you're here. I mean, uh, that's kind of like a kid that wants to be an astronaut becomes an astronaut, in my opinion, for like academia. So tell us a little bit about your journey um, to, to OSU. Yeah, that uh, as you said that, I mean, that's that was a surreal experience. Uh, So I first learned about Becky in my freshman year in college. I was just in an ecology and evolution class, and we read one of her papers. And um, it was actually uh, work that then led to the Anna Karenina paper. Mm -hmm. And I was so fascinated by uh, these coral microbiome dynamics and and studying the system, uh, I kind of kept... Uh, her name in the back of my head throughout my entire undergraduate program. And then when I was applying to labs for graduate school, it was sort of like, okay, if I can get into this lab, I'm, I'm definitely going. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's such an incredible group to work in because it's uh, 
um, it's just incredible people doing really cool projects. And it is a, it is a really large research group because everyone wants to work with Becky. Uh, yeah, Becky, Becky is awesome. And, um, uh, she supports such a wide variety of important research in, um, marine microbial ecology and conservation. Um, and it, it, because it's such a, such a large group and, and there's a lot going on, um, sometimes it was hard to kind of find direction, uh, in all of that. Uh, but so, and, and because of that, I'm actually now co-advised uh, between, uh, doctors Tom Sharpton and, and Becky in, in the department. And I think this is a fantastic thing. And if, if any of you are considering uh, co-advisement, if you're starting graduate programs, I would highly recommend it. Uh, and even even though they're, it's not really the norm, I think, uh, in a lot of graduate programs in the U.S., it's it's an incredible way to sort of uh, both get a diverse perspective throughout your program and de- develop a diverse skill set, and also get uh, the mentorship that you need uh, to to continue. Well, we've got another co-advisee sitting yeah. right next to me. Yeah. <laughs> My seal of approval in it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Co-advisement is awesome. Yeah. 10 out of 10. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're sort of getting to the to the end of our episode here. Um, I've learned so I, I we usually do. I mean, usually we always do a pre-interview, but I feel like I've learned so much more in this live interview than than we did in the pre-interview. Um, yeah, Alex, it's been so lovely having you on. Um, but let us before we say goodbye. Um, move on to our three traditions. Um, our very first is a new one to me. I think this is this is a new one that we've that the team has introduced recently. Um, yeah. But it um, it's for you to tell us the your favorite thing about your research, which is quite broad in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, what's your favorite thing about your research? This might sound banal. I, I bet a lot of people have given you this answer al- already. I guess it's a new question, so I mean, it can start the trend. Uh, but the people that I work with um, I th- are my favorite part. Uh, and it's been kind of hard through COVID the past uh, several years to make uh, important and lasting connections with people. And I, and I think after this, a lot of us, um, myself included, have kind of forgotten on some base level how to interact with other humans. Um, <laughs> but over the past year, I've gotten to meet just such incredible people that work in my field. And um, and working on Maria recently, uh, the, the levels of, of uh, COVID there were actually really low this summer. And we got to have a little bit more um, group hangouts, group interactions, and mm. to meet these people closer. And it's just, it's such an incredible uh, field. And I'm, I'm really thankful to, to be working here. Do, for the folks you work with, um, when they get stressed, do they bleach their hair to honor the corals? <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I think we should. I, I, I've never heard of that, um, but I think we should start, start doing that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's also like a like a stressor on like the hair. Right, yeah. Like your your hair health. <laughs> your hair microbiome probably gets destabilized from that. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay, so our next tradition here is uh, to ask for a piece of advice. So this can be advice for your past self or for undergrads or for anyone or anything for the corals also. Um, what advice would you like to share? Um, so... This is definitely for starting graduate students, but I think it, it's probably broadly applicable as well. And maybe some people are already super good at doing this, but uh, something that I uh, really struggled at the start of my program is asking more questions than I think I need to. Mm. So when you're when you're learning something new and when you're entering a whole new environment, a whole um, new uh, working world, uh, something that's kind of hard is is getting adjusted and, and making sure you're uh, learning everything correctly and uh, doing doing your projects as, as they should be done mm-hmm. and um, learning all of these new techniques. Sometimes, especially du- uh, during COVID, it was really hard to just kind of be in the lab alone a lot of the time mm-hmm. and, and and sort of develop an intuition for what works and for what doesn't work, uh, but. Asking questions 
even though sometimes it's kind of stressful and you think you're interrupting people in their busy lives and in their in their busy schedules it's super important and um and it'll benefit everyone and and sometimes people haven't even thought about um this this question that you have because you you're coming from a completely different field so just ask questions and then ask questions on top of questions i think is my advice <laughs> i love that advice we obviously like questions because we ask them every sunday <laughs> i was just gonna say if anyone needs to practice asking questions they could join us on this side of the booth <laughs> that's true we're always looking for mo more hosts <laughs> um all right we have come to our third tradition which is that you get to pick your outro song so tell tell the listeners what you have chosen and why this is kind of a random choice, but I, <laughs> but I chose a uh, I chose a song called "Underwater Boy" by Turnstile, and the the main reason why I chose the song is this is what I strive to be at all waking moments <laughs> is Underwater Boy, and uh, yeah, as um, as you mentioned, I I went diving today, and I, I want to be underwater as much as possible. So, and I just want to point out, boy is spelled B O I which I think is particularly excellent. <laughs> the evolution of skater boy. Yeah. <laughs> In the best way. Yes. Yeah. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really great reintroduction for me to hosting after a like five month break from the summer. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. And everyone, this is um, underwater boy by turnstile. Right, thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.